<sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. <sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth and justice, believers in peace, freedom and the American way. Tom Harbin here with you to start out on not a happy note. Congressman John Conyers passed away or former Congressman John Conyers. He was 90 years old. I just wanted to acknowledge him. He was just an extraordinary man. He was also a good friend of Tim Carpenter's, who is the founder of Progressive Democrats of America. And I've, I was on their board for years and Conyers back in April of 2014, came to a PDA meeting and gave a talk. He was a, a regular guest on this program. He came on often, particularly to talk about his Medicare for All plan, which he repeatedly introduced into the House of Representatives. Just a good guy, John Conyers. So just wanted to start with that. Trump goes to the baseball game and gets booed. And then they start a chant of lock him up. At 100 decibels. I mean, this is the, at, at the level of sound of a jet engine. He was not happy. Meanwhile, al-Baghdadi was killed. It's interesting. You know, Trump has released this picture and talked about how he was there through the whole thing. They actually had to delay this by almost a month because he screwed everything up by pulling our troops out of Syria or out of that, you know, northern strip. Gary Kasparov tweets... Surely Putin and Erdogan gave up al-Baghdadi in exchange for Trump abandoning northern Syria and the Kurds. A quid pro quo, I believe it is called. Either they gave him up or they simply declined to warn him this time. That's interesting. Uh, the Russian foreign ministry announced over the weekend that they were skeptical that al-Baghdadi had been killed. Although the Russians were the first people that Trump thanked. But they said, no, we don't think he, he was killed. Why? Well, because on May 28, 2017, Russia claimed that they had killed al-Baghdadi in an airstrike. Uh, you know, <laughs> a month later, he was killed in a Syrian artillery strike on June 11th. Then the leader of Iran on June 29th uh, said uh, he's definitely dead. And on uh, July 11th of 2017, the Syrian Observatory for Human Rights confirmed that al-Baghdadi was dead. So here you have the Russians killed him. Two weeks later, or a week and a half later, the Syrians confirm that he's dead. Two weeks later, the president of Iran confirms that he's dead. A week after that, the Syrian Observatory for Human Rights confirms that he's dead. 
And then yesterday, Trump says that he killed him again. I'm a little confused. But, you know, I'm inclined to believe our military, even though I don't believe our president. Pete Souza, the guy who was the photographer inside the White House throughout the Obama administration, his, uh, his photographs are just absolutely iconic, reports that the photo on the camera, the metadata on the photo shows that it was taken, the picture was taken at 5.05. Trump said it was taken at 3 o'clock, 3.30, when the raid was happening. Apparently, it was posed afterwards. Very strange. And a former Pentagon official uh, has just, like, come right out and said it. Uh, Dana Struhl, former Pentagon official who's now a senior fellow with the Washington Institute for Near East Policy, said that the Syrian Democratic Forces spent five months working with the U.S. government to gather intelligence on Baghdadi's whereabouts. The operation was delayed for a full month by Turkey's military activity at the border and the subsequent incursion into Syria. Amazing. I also mentioned Trump uh, got the uh, lock him up chant in Washington, D.C. A, that's probably worthy of giving D.C. statehood. B, I think this actually is causing, you know, if, if the world notices that when Donald Trump shows up at a ballpark, he, he get, people yell, lock him up. A, maybe Trump is starting to realize that his little hand-picked crowds for his rallies don't reflect America. And number two, maybe the world is starting to realize that we are not all as, as crass and crazy as the Trump, as the maggots who show up at these rallies. There's a lot of other stuff going on, and you know that we will be getting to. But this Franklin Roosevelt speech, this is just remarkable. It was his State of the Union address in 1938. And he said, unhappy events abroad have retaught us two simple truths about the liberty of a democratic people. The first truth is that the liberty of a democracy is not safe. Now, keep in mind, this is 1938. This is five years, I guess, after Hitler came to power. The first truth is that the liberty of a democracy is not safe if the people tolerate the growth of private power to the point where it becomes stronger than their democratic state itself. That, in its essence, is fascism. Ownership of government by an individual, by a group, or by any other controlling private power. That is the second sentence of the president's State of the Union address in 1938. Can you imagine a president today giving a State of the Union address that starts out that way? He continues, he says, the second truth is that the liberty of a democracy is not safe if its business system does not provide employment and produce and distribute goods in such a way as to sustain an acceptable standard of living. In other words, living wage. Both lessons, FDR said, hit home. Among us today, now this was 1938, this was, you know, Five years into the New Deal, he was making really substantial progress. But what he was left over with was the, the Harding, Coolidge, and Hoover administrations, which were essentially, they did the same thing Reagan did, you know, cut taxes, deregulate, all that kind of stuff. And it produced, you know, a little mini Gilded Age. Like we refer to it as the Roaring Twenties. So back to FDR's, you know, address to Congress. He says, among us today, a concentration of private power without equal in history is growing. 
This concentration is seriously impairing the, effect, the economic effectiveness of private enterprise as a way of providing employment for labor and capital and as a way of assuring a more equitable distribution of income and earnings among the people of the nation as a whole. In other words, this concentration of private power is a threat to business itself as well. He says, we believe in a way of living in which political democracy and free private enterprise for profit should serve and protect each other to ensure a maximum of human liberty, not for a few, but for all. It has been well said that the freest government, if it could exist, would not be long acceptable if the tendency of the laws were to create a rapid accumulation of property in few hands and to render the great mass of the population dependent and penniless. Today, many Americans ask the uneasy question, FDR told Congress, is the vociferation that our liberties are in danger justified by the facts? And then he goes through and he lays out the facts. He says, today's answer on the part of average men and women in every part of the country is far more accurate than it would have been in 1929. Their answer is that if there is a danger, it comes from that concentrated private economic power which is struggling so hard to master our democratic government. It's remarkable. On the line with us is Judd Legum. He publishes a daily newsletter that I subscribe to and I I read it every day and at least a couple times a week. It's just like, wow. And you, you hear me quoting this all the time on the air here. Today's edition, I guess would be the word, was particularly interesting. It's uh, popular.info is the website if you want to sign up for it. Judd, welcome back to the program. Thanks for having me, Tom. So there's something weird going on with our social media. I don't get this whole thing. I, Facebook, a couple of weeks ago, shut down my personal account. I mean, it's just a personal account that I've had for like 15 years that I use to keep track of my family and friends. And that was weird. And, and there's no way to appeal it as far as I can tell. Every, everything I've tried, you know, I had to upload my driver's license like seven times and nothing. And the same thing happened over at DemocraticUnderground.com. They, they shut down my personal account. I don't get it. I, you know, I don't know what's going on. And then you come out with this story about how, well, for example, who is this guy, Joel Kaplan at Facebook? He's the head of all global public policy at Facebook. Very important person, basically in charge of the D.C. office of Facebook is the way to think about it. Really a long history as a Republican operative, worked in the George W. Bush administration, and people started to become aware of him when he showed up at the Brett Kavanaugh hearing, when Brett Kavanaugh came back to testify about his alleged sexual assault and basically sat behind him, supporting him. That's fascinating. And you, know, you didn't get into that so much in today's edition, but I was reading, don't recall where now, over the weekend, that when Zuckerberg was in town, he had a meeting with a whole bunch of Republicans. He was meeting with conservatives. Uh, he was not meeting with liberals. And suddenly the Republicans have started treating him very nicely. Uh, and then your piece today is about how this one particular right-wing crank, Ben Shapiro, who's been you know, on the fringe of, of that movement for a long, long time. He used to come on my program back you know, a decade ago and debate me, and now he's kind of moved on to bigger, bigger and better things, I guess. Has this website that has just taken Facebook by storm using techniques that progressive sites have tried to use and have gotten kicked off the service for. Tell me about that. 
Yeah, I mean, I think what, what you referenced, there, there's a real courting of the right and the far right. Zuckerberg was actually invited a lot of these folks, including Ben Shapiro, to his home for dinner in California. And what my newsletter goes over today is just the extraordinary reach of this far-right site, The Daily Wire, on Facebook. I mean, multiple, each article is getting multiples of what an article from the New York Times or the Washington Post or really any other publication. And so what, what the newsletter lays out is they're able to do this through this network of <laughs> sites of large Facebook pages that appear to be independent media sites. You know, they're called conservative news or whatever. And then, but they just keep pumping out articles from his website, which is called the Daily Wire. You're not supposed to be allowed to do this. Facebook has a name for it. It's called inauthentic coordinated behavior. And a lot of people have gotten their pages taken down for engaging this kind of stuff. But Facebook is going to let this continue to go on. Well, in fact, you know, you had graphs here showing that this right-wing website that is trafficking in misogyny and hate, essentially, has a bigger reach than the New York Times, the Washington Post, Huffington Post. I, do I have that right? Yeah. On I mean, Facebook. it has almost the same total reach, but what that graph does is look on a per-article basis, right? Mm -hmm. Because, you know, New York Times has hundreds, if not thousands, of journalists churning out lots of original content. They've got you know, maybe a couple dozen people, uh, mostly aggregating stuff, but on a per article basis. So they almost get as much reach in aggregate, but on a per article basis, whereas the New York Times might get 1,500 what they call engagement likes, shares, or comments for an article, the, the Daily Wire averages 15,000. So it's a huge wow. difference, and it's a lot of it, you know, there, there's a, there are a number of factors, but one of it is is this this network that they've established, and and I think the broader point is that Facebook is kind of bending over backwards to to cater to this section of the political debate, the far right, and and really carving out exceptions to their rules to make sure that they're not interfering with do you th them. Do you think that that might be because the only calls to break up Facebook or any of the big tech giants are coming from the left? Or could that be the, or is there some other, or could it be that Zuckerberg is, you know, another libertarian billionaire? Well, we're, we're a little bit in the realm of speculation, but I'll tell you what I think. I do think that first thing that you were talking about, the real fear that this company is going to be broken up. You know, you, you probably heard the leaked audio from the Facebook meeting where he describes Elizabeth Warren as an existential threat uh, and says they would go to Matt to fight, with, fight her if she became president. Right. And she um, has said that she would break up the company or at least, you know, make them, do, right. you know, let go of some of the other companies that they've acquired, like Instagram. Right. Exactly. Instagram and maybe WhatsApp. And so I think that my view is, and this is a somewhat informed opinion because I've talked to other former Facebook employees who, who agree with this as well, that they really think that their best chance to head this off is just by getting in good uh, with the Republicans in Congress. And that means with the Republican media apparatus in general. Mm -hmm. uh, and, so that's, and so that's the priority. And all the policies they make are kind of to serve that objective, uh, but not necessarily, you know, what actually makes sense or what might create a coherent 
social media platform. You know, we saw that with their policy where politicians are allowed to lie in ads. Uh, and of course, the, the person who's doing that the most or really exclusively on the presidential level is Donald Trump. Yeah. So. Yeah. Now that I've been uh, kicked off Facebook, at least personally, you know, we still have a page for our show. But in any case, I started looking around, you know, is there an alternative? You know, uh, there used to be multiple social media companies, you know, uh, MySpace and and I forget the names of them now. It's it's been a while, but it looks like Facebook really doesn't have any competition. Is that an accurate? Well, yeah, I mean, if you look at if you look at the platforms that would have been the biggest competition, Facebook bought both of them. So Instagram was growing very rapidly. Mm. You know, and right now it has a somewhat different functionality than Facebook, or, or Facebook doesn't duplicate too much of the functionality, mm. but it definitely could have, and it could have developed that way to be a competitor in that respect. And WhatsApp is another one. It's, it's a messaging program, but it could have easily uh, been adapted uh, to take its place. So, yeah, there's not a lot of alternatives, particularly because the scale is important, right? You want a place where most of the people you know, you might be able to connect with, and there's not a lot of alternatives to that. Right. Last question. This has to do with breaking up Facebook. When AT&T was broken up, the shareholder value was actually increased substantially. If you owned one share of Mm AT&T stock, and then after the breakup, you owned one share in each of the six baby or six or seven baby Bells and and Bell Labs or, uh, you know, uh, Mm -hmm. the the new company, the new research arm, you actually saw the value of your investment go up. The same thing happened with Standard Oil. When Standard Oil was broken into 27 companies, there was almost within three-year period uh, more than a doubling of shareholder value. I think you could make the argument to Mark Zuckerberg personally that if Facebook were broken up into five or six smaller companies and you still own all the stock in all those companies, you're going to see a dramatic increase in your own personal wealth. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't think that's unreasonable. I think certainly if you had more competition, you would see more innovation in the way that the features that that these uh, platforms are rolling out. Well, either way, I think Zuckerberg will be fine. But yeah, I don't. I think that's. I think that's very possible. That yeah. You could, you well, could just, do even better. You know, yeah, I don't know what's motivating him here at this point. I mean, you know, he's he's one of the richest men on on the planet. He could easily, you know, just just you know take off. <laughs> oh well. Anyway, uh, Judd Legum. The website is popular.info. I-N-F-O, popular.info. Be sure to check it out and subscribe to this newsletter. It's free and it's amazing. Judd, thanks so much for dropping by. Thanks so much. Good talking with you. We'll be right back. I've recently discovered the powerful health benefits of CBD oil, and I've been using New Leaf Natural CBD oil for a while now, and I love it. CBD oil is non-intoxicating, which makes it ideal for people wanting the health benefits of cannabinoids without the mind-altering effects of medical marijuana. CBD is non-toxic and has potent pain-relieving and anti-inflammatory properties. And the brand I trust the most is New Leaf Naturals. New Leaf Naturals is the highest quality CBD oil on the market. It's 100% organic, highly concentrated, contains no additional additives, grown in the United States, and the only ingredient is hemp. So the product remains in its most pure and simple form. Go to newleafnaturals.com, that's N-U-Leafnaturals.com, and save 30% off and get free shipping in the U.S. when you use the code TOM, spelled T-H-O-M. Go to N-U-Leafnaturals.com. For premium cannabinoid wellness, there's only one place, newleafnaturals.com. That's N-U-Leafnaturals.com, newleafnaturals.com.
This is the Tom Hartman Program. Our book today in the Tom Hartman Book Club is Mind uh, Blank, Cambridge Analytica and the Plot to Break America by Christopher Wiley. This is from the Revelations chapter, next to the last chapter. My life now looks like that of a paranoid man, but after being assaulted in the street, receiving threats from rogue private security firms, having my hotel room broken into late at night as I was sleeping, and experiencing two hacking attempts on my email in the past 12 months, it's only sensible to be cautious. When I had my flat checked for security risks, the TV was deemed a risk, as it could be used to watch or listen to me without my ever knowing. As we dismantled it, I smiled at the irony of a TV that watches you. In the days leading up to the story's publication, when Facebook began sending me legal threats and escalated my case up to its deputy general counsel and vice president, my lawyers realized that the company saw my whistleblowing as a major threat to its business. Having experience on other hacking cases, my lawyers knew what companies backed into a corner were willing to do. But Facebook was different. They did not need to hack me. They could simply track me everywhere because of the apps on my phone, where I was, who my contacts were, who I was meeting. I disposed of my phone, and my lawyers bought new clean phones that have never touched Facebook, Instagram, or WhatsApp. The terms and conditions of Facebook's mobile app ask for microphone and camera access. Although the company is at pains to deny pulling user audio data for targeted advertising, there is nonetheless a technical permission sitting on our phones that allows access to audio capabilities. And I was not an average user. I was the company's biggest reputational threat at the time. At least in theory, audio could be activated, and my lawyers were concerned that the company could listen in on my conversations with them or with the police. Facebook already had access to my photos and my camera, which put them in a position to not just listen to me, but also to see where I was. Even if I was alone in the bathroom taking a shower, I wasn't ever really alone. If my phone was there, so was Facebook. There was no escape. But getting rid of my phone wasn't going to be enough. My mom, dad, and sisters all had to remove Facebook, Instagram, and WhatsApp from their phones for the same reason. But Facebook also knew who all my friends were. They knew where they liked to go out, what we wrote about in messages, and they knew where we all lived. Even hanging out with my friends became a risk, as Facebook had access to their phones. If a friend took a photo, Facebook could access it, and in facial recognition algorithms could, at least in theory, detect my face in the photos sitting on other people's phones, even if they were strangers to me. As I was getting rid of my old electronics, my friends joked that it was as if I was exorcising the demons inside the machines. And one friend even brought over some sage to burn, just in case. A funny gesture, of course, but in a way it really was an exorcism. We now live in a world where there are invisible spirits made of code and data that have the power to watch us, listen to us, and think about us. And I wanted these specters gone from my life. On March 16, 2018, a day before The Guardian and The New York Times published my story, Facebook announced that it was banning me, not only from Facebook, but also Instagram. Facebook had refused to ban white supremacists, neo-Nazis, and other armies of hate, but it had chosen to ban me. The company demanded that I hand over my phone and personal computer and said that the only way for me to be reinstated was, in effect, to give them the same information I was providing the authorities. Facebook behaved as if it were a nation state rather than a company. The firm did not seem to understand that I was not the subject of investigation, they were. My lawyers advised me to refuse their demands so as not to interfere with a lawful police and regulatory investigation. Later, when I was working with the authorities, the ban made it far more difficult to hand over evidence that was sitting in my Facebook account, and the investigation into what happened during the Brexit referendum suffered as a result. 
They say you appreciate something only when it's gone, and it was only when I was erased from Facebook that I truly realized how frequently my life touched their platform. Several of my phone's apps stopped working, a dating app, a taxi app, a messaging app, because they used Facebook authentication. Subscriptions and accounts I had on websites failed for the same reason. People often talk about a dualism to the cyber world and our real lives. But after having most of my digital identity confiscated, I can tell you that they are not separate. When you are erased from social media, you lose touch with people. I stopped getting invited to parties, not intentionally, but because those invites also happened on Facebook or were posted on Instagram. Friends who did not have my new phone number found it nearly impossible to get a hold of me, except for trying to send an email to my lawyers. When I got through the thick of the whistleblowing, it would only be in coincidental encounters at clubs or bars that I would make contact with people I had not seen in months. And now when guys on dating apps ask to check out my Instagram profile, it starts an awkward explanation of how I was banned and that I'm not catfishing, I promise. It's as if my identity has been confiscated and people no longer believe I am who I say I am. Sometimes I get recognized as that guy and people worry that someone might start watching them if they decide to meet me. I always tell them that they needn't worry because these companies are already tracking them 24-7. This ban was nothing more than a dick move by Facebook and it felt like trolling by frightened bullies. For me, it created at most an annoying personal hassle and was not nearly as consequential to my life as the kinds of retaliation that other whistleblowers have experienced. Not to mention the degree of damage to modern society that the platform has already aided and abetted. But it showed me just how integral my online identity had become to so many facets of my life. The book by Christopher Wiley. On the line with us, the Deputy Editorial Director at Media Matters, Pam Vogel. And MediaMatters.org, of course, is the website I recommended on the air here frequently, and they just do some really, really great work. Pam, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. You had an article, and I believe I also got an email about it, about Boris Epstein over on Sinclair. Sinclair Broadcasting owns a couple of hundred TV stations around the country. I'm old enough to remember prior to 1987 when Reagan stopped enforcing the Fairness Doctrine. In fact, I worked at a television station in Lansing, Michigan in the early 1970s and WJIM-TV, which was maybe three nights a week. The station management, in fact, often it was the guy who owned the station, it was locally owned, would come on and he'd do a little two or three minute op-ed or editorial, and often it had to do with politics. Sometimes it was just, you know, fix the potholes. But there was always, right after that, somebody from the community, it could be a politician, it could be, a, you know, whoever, some local person who came on and offered the other side of the issue, rebutted what they said. The Fairness Doctrine required that. It didn't require that if the if a radio station carries an hour of Rush Limbaugh, they have to carry an hour of Tom Hartman. But it did require that if a person who speaks for ownership or management of a radio or television station offers an opinion on the air, a contrasting opinion had to be offered. That's no longer the case. What's up with Sinclair now? How are they abusing this newfound power that they have since the Fairness Doctrine, since Reagan stopped enforcing it, and then Obama actually took it off the books a couple of years ago? So to back up, Sinclair is pretty clearly has conservative owners. They're rapidly expanding, as you mentioned. And for a while, for almost two years, 
they had one commentator only, and that was Boris Epstein, who used to be uh, used to work for the Trump campaign, and then was briefly in the administration and was a media surrogate, appearing on like CNN, for example, to represent Trump. He came on board as their chief political analyst. He's now their chief political commentator. I think they're leaning a little more heavily into branding and his commentary. But for a very long time, it was just him. So they couldn't hide behind the sort of argument that, for example, Fox News would of saying fair and balanced or something like that. They really had literally one editorial voice. Um, as of February this year, they actually did add on a liberal commentator named Amisha Cross. And the way that they structure his commentary segments now is that they have a rebuttal from her. And those air with a new topic about usually every weekday. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, they're also beefing up their right-wing programming. So it's not as though it's 50-50 now either. Yeah. So Sinclair is producing a ton of national programming from their corporate level that they're disseminating out into the stations that they control. And I don't want to say own. I say control because they use a lot of other FCC loopholes to effectively control um, and operate stations that they're technically not allowed to own, Mm. which is why that number is so high. So um, any Sinclair station that is a news station, some of them don't air news, but any that are airing news are required to air these almost daily commentary segments from Boris Epstein, um, from Amisha Cross. And then they're also airing several other types of programming that are, again, coming from the national level that all have a conservative bent. So they have another segment that's pretty regular called the Terrorism Alert Desk that is pretty strongly anti-Muslim and xenophobic. It's very focused on one specific and narrow definition of terror. And they're also showing some longer programming, like an hour-long weekly show from Eric Bowling, who used to work at Fox News. He was fired there following reports of sexual harassment and then hired by Sinclair. His show very easily could be on Fox News. It's extremely conservative, and he doesn't really hide that either, although he kind of pays lip service to being fair. But in reality, if you look at the guests and his commentary throughout the show, it's not. And then they also offer some other sort of like Sunday political programs with different reporters who are either former Fox people or just known in the industry for being conservative and leaning in that direction. Yeah, this is like peak Powell memo, you know, take over the media, have our billionaire buddies buy up media all across the country. It's happening. Now, Epstein was doing this fear-mongering rant about how immigrants, actually, it's we, we don't have so many immigrants these days, it's refugee seekers, asylum seekers, are coming into this country and raping children was his shtick, right? As if to suggest that people who are not citizens of the United States are much more inclined to be criminal and and much more inclined to be criminal in ways that that you know everybody finds repugnant i mean you're just you know, horrible can you speak to that yeah i think there's a few sort of trends that this particular segment plays into one is that epstein's commentary in general tends to fall into one of two categories either it's like very very bland and milk toast and it's basically just filling up time agreeing with whatever trump did that day or purposely sort of highlighting something that's not in the news that might make Trump look better, or it's this type of segment where he's like leaning full bore into the most racist, xenophobic, fear-mongering type of rhetoric that, again, would not be out of place somewhere like Fox News or Rush Limbaugh or other places we know are just like complete Trump loyalists. 
So that is one thing. He, and he's done a lot of segments like this in the past, and they've often been also around immigration. As we know, this talking point was, you know, how Trump kicked off his election campaign in 2015. So it's no surprise that it keeps coming out, out of Epstein's mouth, too. So this is the one of, the, I think, the latest of, I would say, one, two, three, you know, five or six other segments that have just driven a ton of completely warranted outrage because he's fear-mongering around immigrants. It's very clearly what's going on here. So that is one trend. And then I think also he's kind of, well... I, I think part of it is, too, that these things are so, these commentary segments are so short and so vague that they can't provide the context to make them factually relevant or accurate for viewers anyway. So obviously there's this bigger part of sustainable, repeated rhetoric that's damaging and has nothing to do with facts, but then also the actual facts of the segment don't add up either. So for example, the cases that he's citing to make this point are completely, you know, contextless. He's not offering almost any details of any of the cases. He's purposely combining things that aren't related. So one of the things he brings up in this segment, for example, is about a Virginia police officer who was suspended for breaching the official department policy, which was to not cooperate with ICE by turning over a driver that he stopped in relation to a traffic accident. This has nothing to do with the actual point Epstein was attempting to make about violent crime, but he just sort of throws it in there because the segment is only 90 seconds. So he has the luxury of sort of just vaguely throwing in a few sentences that he thinks might, you know, prove a point without having to go through and actually back up what he's saying. Pam, this sounds like propaganda to me. It is. And that's that that's sort of what it gets back to too, is that this rhetoric is repeated. So it doesn't have to be factually accurate at the end of the day. If you're hearing the same thing over and over again, Sinclair would make the argument defending segments like this by saying, well, it's only a very small part of any local news station's actual programming. 90% of your local news station that's owned by Sinclair or operated by Sinclair is showing local programming or syndicated stuff like entertainment shows at night. They're not showing Boris's segment for that long. And that's true, but they don't need to because hearing 90 seconds of some form of this rhetoric, whether it's something very extreme like this latest example, or whether it's that sort of milquetoast stuff that's just sort of repetitively trying to make the point that something is, you know, going well for the Trump administration, it all adds up. Propaganda relies so heavily on repetition. Well, and I would argue that that um, if he's doing these little segments on a station that's also carrying Dancing with the Stars or whatever, you know, programs that, that Americans like to watch that don't seem to have any kind of political edge to them, that that is actually adding credibility to his riff. It's making it seem like his riff is coming out of a out of a place in the middle, out of a out of a, an unbiased place. If most of the rest of the programming around, you know, unlike Fox News, you watch Fox News and you and you look at the programming around, you know, the periodic rants, and it's all crazed right wing stuff, and everybody figures that out right away. That's not the case with Sinclair, which I think actually adds to the potency as well as the credibility of these segments that Boris is doing that, you know, that I'm saying are propaganda. Absolutely. I mean, part of the reason why I focus my research so heavily on Sinclair is because it makes me frustrated on an emotional level because I feel like they're taking advantage of local news viewers. Yep. There's nothing on the bottom of the screen that says Sinclair. You, you associate your local news stations more likely with whatever affiliate they are, an ABC mm. affiliate, an NBC affiliate. You're not thinking about who the owners are behind the scenes, and they're not advertising that. And there's all sorts of studies and data that show 
that generally trust local news sources more than national sources, yep. partly because you see your local news anchor, you know, you're waking up and watching them talk about the stories of the day every day. They're talking about traffic. You might see them out and about at the grocery store. So you have like an inherent trust built into it because they're a member of your community. And so in some ways, what I also find frustrating about the Sinclair model is it's not good for viewers. It's also not good for a lot of those local reporters who just want to do their jobs and now have to have, you know, slice off time from a segment they want to do because they need to fit in this 90 seconds or, you know, at this point longer because you're doing two segments into their newscasts. They could be spending it on other things and it's damaging their credibility. Right, because they're being painted as, as, you know, basically associates of Boris, you know. Um, Right. Yeah, remarkable stuff. Pam Vogel, MediaMatters.org is the website. If you don't regularly check out Media Matters, start doing it now. It's just a remarkable site. You guys have been doing God's work for years. Pam, thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you. Great talking with you. As a believer in natural medicine, I'm one to shy away from surgery, especially cosmetic procedures. But let's face it, we're all human and want to look good. Decades of hard work leaves its mark. And there is a product that not only works, but also meets my non-invasive criteria. I'm talking about Plexiderm. It's derived from shale rock and visibly reduces under-eye bags, wrinkles, and crow's feet in minutes. No knives, no needles, only naturally derived ingredients. Don't believe it? Try it. You'll look like yourself, only younger within minutes. The best part is Plexiderm goes on clear, so nobody will know you're using it, unless, of course, you tell them, and the effects last for hours. Go to TryPlexiderm.com and use my code TOM, T-H-O-M, for 50% off plus an additional $10 off. That's right, 50% off plus an additional $10 off. Plexiderm is backed by a 30-day money-back guarantee. Don't be a victim of your skin any longer. Visit TryPlexiderm.com and use the code TOM, T-H-O-M, at checkout. That's TryPlexiderm.com or call 800-685-1292. That's TryPlexiderm.com, code TOM, or call 800-685-1292. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Pam in Seattle? Tom. Oh, Tom. It says P-O-M, and I didn't, I didn't know oh. which kind of typo it was. T-O-M. Okay, thanks, Back Tom. Close enough. First time I saw Boris Epstein on the local channel here of uh, Como TV, I said, okay, I'm not watching that anymore because I know what that is. That's Sinclair Broadcasting. Yeah. So I, yeah, I it's, never... It's, we've got a station like that Tom, here in Portland, too. They're doing the same thing. Yeah, so just make sure I never even accidentally tune into that station because they log all that stuff over the cable. Just some brief history. Sinclair Broadcasting, by the way, are the ones who started, uh, coined the phrase, the fake news. This was one of their promotionals. When Sinclair Broadcasting started in 1972 in, in Maryland, Baltimore, as one TV station, they became a public company in 1983, I think, or 86. And then Julian Sinclair Smith, Died in 1993, and his four sons took over the leadership of the country in 1996, company, and had yeah. big, uh, yeah, had big plans to expand it. And the one of their strategies to expand the the company was to quote uh, to coin two phrases: one, the mainstream media, the and in Sinclair Broadcasting, you get stories you won't hear in the mainstream media, the fake news of the mainstream media. That's what they started in 1996, and that's just being picked up now. So that well, was a marketing campaign by a television station? Yeah, yeah by a t- wow. broadcasting company, yeah. It's wow. a, the fake news. What you hear here is what you won't hear 
on the mainstream media fake news. That started in the 90s. Wow. So this is interesting because, you know, this morning, and this goes into the hearing, the, 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 one of the talk radio stations that I listened to in the morning, which is uh, KVI 570 AM, in, uh, is a subsidiary of Como, K-O-M-O, uh, Broadcasting in Seattle, which is now owned by Sinclair, uh, the first thing that they said this morning was, okay, so the Bill Taylor's opening state the, 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 uh, the, has been released. Uh, Bill Taylor, uh, the ambassador to Ukraine, his opening statement has been released but what the, to the fake news. But what the fake news is not reporting is how uh, the Republican cross-examination shredded his testimony. So I'm laughing out you know, my rear end, and I had to call up to ask John Carlson, well, if it hasn't been released, how do you know what was said, right? Right. Well, of course, I said to the producer, and said, well, you know, we're done with that topic now. Uh, give us a, <laughs> Sorry, give Paul. Us a call. Yeah, give us a call later in the morning. We might get back to it. Right. But you see, that's a hit and run, because they're supposing that. So now this is just word of mouth. What has become Sinclair Broadcasting is, the coconut telegraph you learned this by word of mouth and now in recognize the inconsistency here is on the one hand they're saying the republicans are shut out of these hearings which as you pointed out they have a verdict right to be there as members of these and at the same time they're saying that the republicans in cross-examination of bill taylor shredded his opening statement and, and get, led him into complete incredulity so this kind of propaganda and so what's and so while they are the ones who coined the phrase of the mainstream media and the fake news. They are the propaganda and the fake news. And so this has become this kind of, I'm rubber, you're glue. What are, I know you right. are, but what am I? How is this, I mean, you can riff on this, Tom, because how does this, get, how did this sort of immature elementary school type of thing get started to such a degree that this, it is now running our uh, top executive, um, you know, political uh, Yeah. <laughs> well, I think that I think that all began. I mean, you could take this stuff back to McCarthy. I mean, you can take this stuff all the way back to Jefferson versus Adams in some ways. News media back then was newspapers accusing each other of printing stuff that was patently false or was propaganda. But the thing that has put it on steroids was the end of the fairness doctrine when the news divisions of the of the big three networks within a year after Reagan stopped enforcing the fairness doctrine in eighty seven, all three networks moved their news divisions. Uh, which used to be independent, standalone operations under the aegis of the of the entertainment divisions. They all became right. subordinate to vice president of, of programming. So Sinclair has two things that maybe people you can explain what they are. One of them is called must reads and must runs. The must read is what they have their employees in their local stations that they own. They must read this whether you like it or not. So the, right. the your local news person has to read this statement whether they agree with it or not. They have must-runs. An example of a must-run that I, I would like to share with you is they have a show called Full Measure with Cheryl Atkinson. It's like a news magazine show, half hour. And what they do is they basically tell half-truths and blame the uh, appalling consequences on liberals. So, example, they did when Obamacare passed, they ran, one of their segments was on how there's no transparency, there's no transparency or, or standard cost for anything, and depending on where you live or who right. your insurance company is. And so they said, and this is what Obamacare caused. Well, no, this has been going on ever since private insurance started. <laughs> right. People only became aware of it when Obamacare was 
Right, expanded private insurance. Yeah, yeah, I'm with you. Paul, thank you for, for sharing that. Your points are all really well taken. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. And to Paul's point, the Boris Epstein uh, or Stein, whatever, a segment about how uh, immigrants are coming for your children, that was a must run also. This is the Tom Hartman Program. We're reading today from Truth in Our Times by David E. McCraw, Deputy General Counsel of the New York Times, the uh, number two lawyer for the New York Times. This is in Chapter 1, titled Election Day. It opens with a tweet from Donald Trump. The failing New York Times has been wrong about me from the very beginning. Said I would lose the primaries on the general election. Fake news. November 8, 2016. At 10 p.m., I made one last circuit of the newsroom. Our CEO, Mark Thompson, stood near the political desk, looking on with his wife and a small group of others connected somehow to the Times. Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and Michigan remained in doubt, but the reality was sinking in. Donald Trump was on the verge of winning the American presidency. I'd been in newsrooms on election nights before. I know how it's supposed to be. The only thing that ever mattered was the horse race, think Gore Bush, or the historic moment, think Obama-McCain. There was no investment in which candidate was winning. He or she was destined to disappoint in the long run. And the dominant emotion was a certain not-quite-cynical detachment amid the electric buzz of the vote count and projections and the anticipation of relief that the endless push of the campaign was finally over. Sure, you couldn't ignore the victories or the big-picture moments, and the day-after stories would be celebratory in their way, duly restrained but with a nod to victory itself, not unlike the next-day account of a Super Bowl game or Game 7 of the World Series. Capture the triumph for a night or relish the race too close to call. Leave the dancing and crying for others, for the believers. But this night was like no other election night. There had been an investment, not just journalistic, but spiritual, Donald Trump had campaigned not just against Hillary Clinton, but also against the New York Times and the American press, the mainstream American press. And his astonishing rise to the top of the Republican Party had been built on his near-daily attacks on facts, on the very idea that facts matter. For journalists who approach truth like a secular religion and who have seen a thousand times before how a single true story could gut the political career of a lying politician, It had been a year of faith-shaking disbelief. A line had not just been crossed, but obliterated. The shock was palpable as the numbers came in, laced for some with the fading hope for a different outcome among people who generally wanted nothing more than a story worth telling. And there was still a paper to put out, a reckoning to account for. It was too much on an already long night. I slipped away. At the elevators, I ran into Sue Craig and a guy who was obviously not from the Times, Sue had broken one of the biggest stories of the campaign. She was the one who went to her mailbox one day in September and found pages from Donald Trump's tax returns in an envelope. She introduced me to her acquaintance. He had once worked for Trump. I didn't ask why he was there. Like me, Sue had decided to get away. It's too weird here, she said. We all got on the elevator. Sue, who had written a devastating story about Trump, me, whose letter to Trump's lawyers had lit up the Internet for a week in October, and one of Trump's guys. We rode in silence, a strange tableau on the strangest night of the year. Fourteen hours earlier, as I came into the building, the Times security guard had called me over. They wanted to make sure I knew about the plans for the next morning. In the quirky ways that things happened at the Times, I had become the lawyer to see for all the things that security guys encountered, from the intruder who pilfered women's shoes to the anonymous letter weaponized with razor blades. The Times was printing thousands of extra newspapers, and tables were going to be set up outside for all the people who would be showing up to buy the New York Times for posterity's sake. 
The headline, I later learned, was going to read Madam President. <clears throat> we had been caught flat-footed eight years earlier when Barack Obama had made history. By the time I arrived for work early in the morning of the 2008 election, the line was already starting to snake down the sidewalk. Soon there were hundreds of Obama supporters who thought, and why wouldn't they, that the place to buy a copy of the New York Times was surely at the New York Times. Lots of things happen at the Times building. Selling newspapers is not one of them. Employees were pressed into emergency duty to cart bundles of newspapers from the Times printing plant in Queens, and the long lines outside the building stretched on into the afternoon. But it was Obama's victory in 2012 that was on my mind this morning. I vote in a neighborhood that is predominantly black and middle class. In 2012, following a drumbeat of stories about how Republicans hoped to suppress voter turnout, I walked into my polling place at a local school eight minutes after it opened. The line already extended back to the schoolhouse door. Did y'all sleep here, a guy wanted to know as he stepped into the foyer? On uh, this morning in 2016, I had arrived before dawn. I was the only one in line at my precinct's table. That all seemed like a strangely distant memory as midnight approached. I had made my escape from the building with Sue and the Trump guy. At home, I sat alone in the glow of the TV screens as the states that mattered fell into place for the Republicans. I turned it off. Donald Trump was about to become president of the United States. The next morning, in a light drizzle on a gray November day, the newspaper sales tables were set up outside the building as planned. No one stopped. The vendors sat idly amid the stacks. There was no Madam President front page. Instead, the headline read, Trump triumphs. And the first two paragraphs of the lead story talked about how the vote threatened convulsions throughout the country and made an early mention of those who had watched with alarm the rise of Trump. His victory represented a certain kind of hope that change was going to come at last. Truth in Our Times by David McCraw. Until last year, I'd never endorsed a weight loss product, but I decided to change that after reading about university research into a molecule in olive oil that regulates appetite. My wife convinced me there was a product that was worth sharing, and a year later, I'd have to say she was right. You know, the key to losing weight is getting your appetite and those pesky food cravings under control. Once you do that, the rest is easy. The holidays are just around the corner. My producer, Sean, wanted to lose a few pounds ahead of eating season. Sean is trying Riduzone, just one capsule with breakfast and forget it. Second one at dinner for days when you need a little extra help. Sean says when you don't feel hungry, it's easier to make better choices. It's only been a month, and Sean says she's really happy with how Riduzone is working. The only ingredient in Riduzone occurs naturally in the body and is completely non-stimulant. And that really appealed to Louise, Sean, and me. Listen, if you're looking to lose weight this season, I strongly suggest you give non-prescription Riduzone a try. Use the promo code TOM, T-H-O-M, and get up to 65% off plus free shipping. Go to Riduzone.com. It's R-I-D-U-Z-O-N-E.com. R-I-D-U-Zone.com. Riduzone.com. Promo code TOM. That's Riduzone.com. Fred in Deering, New Hampshire. Hey, Fred, what's up? Well, I'm talking about the uh, fairness stock, dropping of the fairness stock, and there's only half the picture. I think a post-Reagan education where you don't have creative teaching, you don't have the arts, you don't have music, and you don't have critical thinking taught. So now you have no fairness doctrine spewing the BS, and you have a, bunch, a whole generation who cannot decipher the BS. Right. You're right. You're right. We, we, and, and part of that was, 
basically the Republicans working hard to change how our public schools work. Part of it also came with the rise of television and now the rise of screens and you know computer screens and things like that. Part of it came from budget cuts and part of it came from the loss of civics education. But critical thinking, yes, back in the 60s and 70s, there was a movement within the conservative movement to end critical thinking basically in our schools and colleges because they believed that critical thinking was what, you know, in other words, the ability to actually question authority and evaluate issues was what was causing young people to protest the Vietnam War. It was causing young people to ignore anti-drug laws. It was causing young people to have sex and, and you know, all things that horrified conservatives. <laughs> and here we are. And you're, you're absolutely right. You've got, you've got two generations of people who, when they hear BS on TV, don't know how to detect it. Angie in Grants Pass, Oregon. Hey, hey, Angie, what's up? I'm so pissed off, I'm almost livid. I have to be so careful about how I listen to regular media. So, for example, the Republicans pulling off this stunt have not only been in the room, but choose not to be in the room where these things are going on. Correct. In the, um, I'm sorry, I'm drawing a blank on what they're called. It's, it's, it's um, a SCIF, the Secure Communications Facility. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And only you and Rachel Maddow, I think, I've been binge-watching, so I kind of get them mixed up, but there have only been two who have specifically said and pointed out that the Republicans are in the room. Yeah. And you pointed out that they were out in the protest little thingy. About half the of the guys protesting are actually on the committees and, and were, you know, just hours before sitting in the committee interrogating witnesses. Yes. <laughs> I mean, most of the media isn't talking about how they no, are. No, they're not. The well, keep in mind, the, the Brooks the Brothers riot was organized by Roger Stone. Roger Stone's business partner is Paul Manafort. Paul Manafort from prison is currently advising Donald Trump via Rudy Giuliani, or at least was as of last week or two weeks ago. So it just makes sense that Roger Stone's little trick that worked so well with the 2000 election would be repeated. Angie, I'm sorry we're out of time, but thank you for the call. Well, We'll be back. We're gonna we're gonna talk about Pacifica in just a minute. To the Tom Hartman program. <laughs> I wanted to talk about something that's going on in the world of media, progressive media. As many of you know, even if you're listening on a commercial radio station, which is where we started with this program, that we also support non-commercial radio. We offer our show for free to Pacifica affiliates and, and unaffiliated non-commercial radio stations all across the country. I record fundraisers for them all the time. And of course, we're on Free Speech TV, which is nonprofit TV as well. So the vice chairwoman and acting chair of the Pacifica uh, Network and the host of the program, Rude Awakening, on KPFA, this is out of the Bay Area, Pacifica.org, of course, is the website for Pacifica, is on the line with us, Sabrina Jacobs. Sabrina, welcome to the program. Thank you. Hi, Tom. I appreciate this opportunity to speak to you and the uh, Pacifica audience and uh, the rest of your audience out there. Thanks for joining us. So one of your Pacifica-affiliated stations, uh, WBAI in New York, carried the third hour of our program for quite some time and recently they're carrying now they're carrying all three hours and we're getting a lot of calls from people in new york and they're saying this is really cool and we like the program we haven't gotten any complaints that i know of so far but people want to know what's going on with pacifica is pacifica going to be okay sure. uh, people listening to the other pacifica stations want to make sure that pacifica is going to be intact i know some of them are in sure. fundraising right now and we want to encourage people to support those stations if they're in their fundraising mode so what's up 
Well, you know, I just want to speak to our community, uh, Pacifica community. I want everyone to understand that the actions taken by our interim executive director, John Verniel, at our New York unit, WBAI, it, it was difficult, but it was very, very necessary. The decision did not come lightly, but it was necessary to save WBAI and to save the network because of its financial shortfalls. And uh, we're talking millions of dollars of lost revenue, Tom. As a board member and acting chair, supported and support this decision in order to fulfill my fiduciary responsibility, and so do the other directors who supported uh, IED John Verniel. Um, we needed to save our beloved station, and uh, this decision didn't come lightly. I can't emphasize that enough. Yeah. But I don't want to dwell on, on that because I want everyone to know that there is a plan that has been pulled together by our IED, not only to restore local programming, but to expand and expound on the progressive and radical programming that Pacifica is known for, which we desperately need in these um, perilous political times. Yeah, it's amazing. I mean, we now have a, uh, even here in, in Portland, Oregon, there's now a local radio station that is run by hardcore white uh, supremacist right-wingers. I mean, mm-hmm. the, the, these things are popping up all That's over right. the place. And of course, you've got, That's you know, right. you can listen to, to right-wing hate radio uh, literally anywhere in the United States. But <laughs> exactly. finding progressive programming is a real challenge. Pacifica is a real jewel in doing that. And I think we all agree it's unfortunate that in order to save the network and WBAI, you had to, for a short period of time, suspend uh, much of the local programming. And of course, our, our position on this with all of our affiliates is what Whatever amount of our program you care to run or not run is all fine with us. I mean, we just we just want to be available because we support Pacifica. I mean, that's the bottom line. And we support local programming as well. You know, good local programming. Absolutely. And we appreciate you, Tom, and, and we love you, love you and love your show. And I also want to bring attention to the temporary implementation of PAA. It's uh, Pacifica Across America onto the airwaves at WBI. This was only done because of the need to allow us time to restructure ourselves financially at that particular unit and to put the foundation as a whole in better standing in order to become eligible for and receive grants and, and donations that we need need to survive. We are listener-supported radio. So uh, amazing shows like yours, of course, and, and Flashpoints, uh, they've been able to reach our New York listeners, and uh, we're able to, to push that out there in the New York uh, area. And um, yeah, it's just, uh, it's been wonderful. It's been a wonderful, wonderful thing. And Pacifica Across America is our opportunity to provide our best of content and offer it to our stations and affiliates. So it's not just for WBAI, but we had to fast track it. And we believe that New Yorkers, we believe that New Yorkers believe in WBAI, and they're going to be a big part of bringing back the local programming, and the bottom line, they're going to be there to help us rebuild yeah, WBAI, New York. WBAI <laughs> helped me do a, a book event uh, a few months ago, and, and uh, I got to, you know, I mm-hmm. met and got to know some of their local shows and, and, and their local management. Some great people there. And, uh, you know, I'm glad that it, this is all going to work through and they're going to be back and, and, you know, everything is going to work out eventually, if I've said mm-hmm. that correctly. Right? 
<laughs> I, yeah. I hope I have. Yes, 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 yes. That is that is our hope. That okay. is definitely our hope. Great. And we're, we're pushing forward towards that. This Again, this is not a decision that came lightly, but uh, our interim executive director, John Bernil, he took the, you know, he, it took courage to do what he did. Yeah, I agree. You know, and it took courage for, for us to say, hey, this needed to happen. It's not like it, we went in there and said, hey, you know, we're going to, we're just going to wipe the slate clean and, and, and get rid of all this local programming and get all get rid of your jobs. And no, we needed to do it in order to survive. We wouldn't be we wouldn't be having this conversation right now, Tom, if that decision wasn't made. And I also want to address the concerns of those that have been listening to the misinformation that there is a plan to sell WBAI. That is absolutely positively not true. Right. There is no plan to sell WBAI or any of the other stations. Mm-hmm. which consists of KPFA, my home station, KPFT in Houston, KPFK in L.A., Los Angeles, and WPFW in Washington, D.C. No plan to sell at all. Great. And we're going to keep fighting. We're going to fight hard to keep that from happening, uh, period. Okay. And again, we believe that the New York listenership will come to our aid. So just hang tough with us, folks. Um, we're doing the best that we can, but we can only push forward with you and your help and your support. There you go. And the Pacifica Foundation's website is pacifica.org. And of course, if you're listening to us on a Pacifica station right now, and particularly if they're in, in Fund Drive, you know, kick in a little bit. Sabrina, I got to run, but thank you so much for dropping by and filling us in. Absolutely. Thank you for the opportunity, Tom. Take good care. Thanks. Great talking with you. Sabrina Jacobs, the vice chairwoman and acting chair of the Pacifica Network. Tim in Aloha, Oregon. Hey, Tim, what's up? This whole DOJ investigation of the DOJ, right. it's insanity. They're, they're not going to investigate anything. The only reason they're coming out with that diatribe is to shore up his voter base. That's all they're doing. Oh, I realize you this know, is I, in large part a PR strategy, but it's also a payback strategy. I mean, they're going to be going after Neil McCabe and Jim Comey and Peter Strzok and Lisa Page. Oh, and all absolutely. These, all these people whose names are, are household names because you can't go five minutes on Fox News without hearing them. It's got to be devastating the morale at the FBI. Uh, you know, yeah, among other the, agencies. The thing is, the, uh, anybody that has any any uh, f- political initiative or knows what's going on in this country, I didn't need the Mueller report. I don't need any of this stuff to understand what a lunatic that man is. Yeah, yeah. You see what I mean? I, I, absolutely, I absolutely do. Tim, I, I want to get one last call in here, but yeah, I agree. William in uh, Portales, New Mexico. Do I have that right? That's correct. Yeah, thanks for um, taking the call, dude. Sure. And, uh, you know, I think for me, I've been listening to your show and um, was really galvanizing when you talked about like the Heritage Foundation because there isn't a deep state. And if there was, that would be it. Well, there's not a pernicious deep state. I mean, you, you do have a permanent federal and state bureaucracy. I mean, and, and I'm just... But but there's not there's not like some giant conspiracy inside the government, you know. I don't think there is because yeah. if there was, but if, if you want a giant was, conspiracy, would... it's operating in plain sight, you know. Federalist Society, the Heritage Foundation, the Cato Institute. I mean, they publicize what they're doing, and, and I think that's Thank your you. point, William. Yeah, thanks a lot for the call. Thank you so much for being with us today and all this week. Please uh, spread the word. However, you're hearing this program or watching this program. Make a commitment to yourself to tell some friends about it, because odds are wherever you're picking up this show, you're also picking up a lot of good progressive programming, and we need more progressive programming in this country. We need more progressive messages. So don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. It requires you.
You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. 